we go to the Lord now in a time of prayer, I want you to think about that promised hope that we have. That there will be a time when we will feast with the Lord and his people forever and we will weep no more. The promise of the new heavens and the new earth is there will be no more crying or mourning or death or pain. Jesus says he's making all things new now, but that promised hope is still for the future. That's why in the Lord's Prayer we pray, thy kingdom come. We ache for that. We long for that. There are many people in our midst who are hurting right now, who are going through very, very difficult things. Let's in prayer encourage that promise. We will feast and weep no more. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer and then I will lead us in a time of pastoral prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, thank you that you are our Father. You belong to us not just individually, but corporately, collectively, as your people. And so we pray together to you, who's ruling and reigning from heaven, from your control room, where you are sovereignly ordaining all things. We pray that your name would be hallowed. You've said in your word that you, will, that you alone are the Lord and you will not give your glory to another. So Lord, may we more and more hallow your name in our lives. And we do long for and pray for the coming of your kingdom when there will be no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. But we recognize for many there still is death and mourning and crying and pain. Of our own number, we think of Bill and Miranda Bonner and we pray for them. We pray, Father, for comfort and for peace and for your mercy. We pray for Tom and Susan Porter and we lift them up before you. We pray, Father, for all those who are either recovering from surgery, having surgery, consulting about surgeries, going through different things. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pour out our heart to you as the psalmist says, trust in him at all times. And we ask that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're reminded, Father, that suffering and pain is not restricted to our little corner of the world and to our congregation. We think this week of the major earthquake to have occurred in Turkey and in Syria, and for the literally thousands who have lost life, been displaced, are homeless, are living in poverty, whose lives have been tragically ransacked. Lord God, show us as a church, how do we be the church? We pray, Father, that you would be the refuge and strength and Lord, bring many to yourself. Merciful God, 
We pray for our daily bread. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us of our forgetfulness. We forget the gospel all the time. We don't remember who we are in Christ. Forgive us, Father, for our inconsistency and help us to be a forgiving people. We pray for our holiness of life, that you would deliver us from the dominion of sin. May we recognize that sin is crouching at the door, desiring to overtake us, desiring to have us, help us by the Spirit to mortify, to put to death our sins. And Father, we ask, recognizing that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, that we would do everything for your glory, remembering it's not about us. It is just not about us. We make it all about us, but it's not about us. And so, Lord, we ask, continue to work within us. I don't know how you're working in all these times in every individual's life, but I pray, Holy Spirit, that you are moving and active in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.
be seated. I know I say this every week, but I feel like we should just, well, we're coming to the Lord's table today, so I won't say that. I feel like we should go right to the Lord's table. I can't top that music ministry. That is absolute. that's the purpose of worship. Lord, I lift your name on high. I mean, you know, right now I'm speaking to my own heart saying, come on, Jeff, that's what we're supposed to do. Lynn, Amy, thank you so much. You bring me to the Lord, and I appreciate that. I am grateful for that. We are continuing in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. This morning we are looking at Romans chapter 9, verses 25 to 29. Pardon me if you're visiting. I feel like I should apologize to you. We're dropping you straight in the middle of the deepest theology of the book of Romans. And I will try my best to say, here's what we're talking about. Here's kind of, so bear with me in terms of this. But I can remember a time being so excited when Evie was pregnant with Joel. And yes, it was a long time ago, but I was excited to be a new father. And one of the things I took so seriously was purchasing all the baby equipment. You know, doing all of that. And so I remember the car seat. Now, of course, being mechanically challenged as I am, I had no clue how to put the car seat in properly. But then I was told the car seat is to face backwards for the safety of the child, not frontwards. And I remember you had to put it in there. You don't face front to be safe. You look backwards. And it kind of reminds me of what's going on here that Paul, in his exposition of the gospel, what he's doing is he is defending the righteousness and faithfulness of God, that God can be trusted. He's taking the Romans on a journey, and he's doing so by having them face towards the rear, to look backwards at the Old Testament, the story of Israel. Because, and this is true in our lives as well, you can really only understand where you are by looking backward at where you've come from. You understand how you relate by looking at your story and go, what has impacted me? What has affected me? What are my joys? What are my traumas? And this is Paul's method here in Romans 9, 25 to 29, where in, these, in this text he's quoting from four Old Testament passages and alluding to even a fifth. He's telling the church at Rome, and he's telling us, you've got to look back, and you've got to see the story of Israel to understand your own story. So friends, hear the word of God from Romans 9, 25 to 29. Paul writes, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray together. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Lord, I pray that you would apply your living and active word 
of God to our hearts and to our lives individually and corporately this morning. Open our hearts and give us ears to hear what you intend for us to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of us remember the times before GPS? What did you need to get from point A to point B? A map. Remember those things? I remember taking trips and you needed that AAA triptych to know where. Anybody remember the AAA triptych? Well, I mentioned being mechanically challenged. It's a good thing God called me to preach because there's not much else I can do in life. Because not only am I mechanically challenged, I'm also very directionally challenged. Or maybe not so much directionally challenged if I were to pay attention, but I get easily distracted and oblivious. Especially when I'm with somebody else who likes to talk as much as I like to talk. And so I remember a time when I was taking a class at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, and I was taking it with my good friend Steve Childers. And after class, Steve had to get to the airport, and he asked me for a ride to the airport. And I said, sure, no problem. I have time to do that. And before we went to the airport, we thought we would stop and get some lunch. So we went to this big mall. And did I mention we were in Charlotte? Because here's where that's important. Neither one of us were from Charlotte. So after lunch at this big mall, we go out, and three guesses what we were doing. Non-stop talking. And here we are, both of us like to talk, we're walking through the parking lot talking, and guess what happens? We can't find the car. We're all over the place. This is before the time of key fobs, where you just press a button, listen for the beep beep, and follow that sound. So here we are walking all over the parking lot, time is getting to be at a premium because, oh, did I mention he has a flight to catch and I'm supposed to be getting him to the airport? And what happens when we can't find the car? We felt lost, confused, disoriented. See, we needed a map. Or, today, we need a GPS. Why? Because you're lost without a map. And you need that map to be trustworthy. See, if you can't trust your map, or today your GPS, you really are lost. If the map is wrong, you are lost, you are in turmoil, you are in chaos, you're like a ship adrift at sea. Here in Romans 9, and here's the context, we're ending and rounding off a section that began at verse 6, where Paul is defending the map. The map that we have is the Word of God. And he began in verse 6 by saying, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. In other words, he says, you have the most trustworthy GPS system in the world. And we have to remember the context because this governs our reading of the entire portion of this letter. Paul is defending the faithfulness, the righteousness, the trustworthiness of God. So Paul's thesis from the beginning is that God's word has not failed. The map is trustworthy. But, maybe you don't know how to read the map. If you're going to understand it, you need to know how to read the map. You need to know how to read God's Word. You, know how, you need to know how to interpret and read God's story. 
God's big picture. So what does this text teach us? What do we need in order to understand God's story? In order to understand God's picture that Paul shows us here in these verses? Two things. We need to understand the nature of salvation, and that is that salvation comes through judgment. And secondly, we need to understand the nature of the people of God. Paul's going to introduce a word, a concept. He only introduces it here. He will expand on it much more, especially when we get to chapter 11, and that's the idea of the remnant. Now, you won't have all your questions answered in terms of that today because Paul's only introducing that. But Paul is here talking about the nature of salvation and the nature of the people of God. First of all, God's big picture shows us the nature of salvation. He says in verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea. Now he's picking up. This is kind of the middle of a sentence. What did verse 24 say? It says, even as he has called us, in other words, through the gospel, we've come to Christ, even as he's called us from both Jews and Gentiles. So he's introducing Gentiles into this picture. And he says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So what's going on here? Paul is quoting. Remember, we're looking backwards in the rearview mirror. Where, to understand where you are, you have to see where you've come from. And he's quoting from two passages from the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and chapter 1, verse 10 where the prophet is speaking of restoration, this case of the worldwide family of God, following judgment. In the original context, Israel has been, Hosea is speaking about Israel be, being cast away for their unfaithfulness. They've become not my people and not beloved. And historically, this is speaking of the time of the Bible. And so he says, you once were not my people. You once were not beloved. And now applying it to both Jewish people and Gentiles, a diverse, beautiful community, he says, you are going to be my people. You are going to be beloved. You are going to be sons of the living God. Let me try to get practical for us for a second. You know, one of the worst things we can do, and it's done all the time today, especially on social media, is to put labels on people. People are what? Conservative, liberal, fundamentalist, progressive, woke. We hear labels all the time. Remember the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? That is one of the worst sayings and the most untrue sayings of all time. I don't know about you, I heard that growing up a little bit. Words can hurt or words can heal. Words can give life and words can destroy. If we are supposed to be a pro-life people, let's be a pro-life, holistically people. A people who believe what Jesus says in John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundant life especially with our words. Can I be practical for a second? 
watch our words. Let's display the beauty of the gospel by not using labels to define people. Let's reveal that the gospel is beautiful by the way that we speak. See, the prophets knew all about the power of giving people names. Names reflected what God said about them. Names define a people. So, for example, story of Israel. Jacob, the name Jacob meant heel grabber, deceiver, manipulator, which is why so significantly in Genesis chapter 32, when Jacob is wrestling with this unidentified man at night, who happened to be the Lord because he named the place Peniel. Why? Because he said, I have seen God face to face. And he received the blessing from the Lord. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. No longer was he going to be defined by being a heel grabber, a striver, one who's blessed only by his performance. Now his name was Israel, meaning he strives or wrestles with God. See, names are important. Hosea is indicating from this that there is first judgment, then salvation, and that salvation comes through judgment. Listen to this. They go from being not my people to being my people. What does it mean to be not my people? You're alone. You're lonely. You don't belong to my people. One of the greatest needs people have, if we're going to be missional as a church, what LOPC 2.0 is all about, if we're going to be outward facing, you know, people need to feel that they belong even before they believe. Doesn't mean we put them in church leadership automatically, but they have to have a sense when they walk in the doors or we greet them that they're safe, that they're secure, that they belong before they believe. Paul is giving view here and he's talking about they go from being not my people to my people, from not beloved to beloved. They go from not my people to sons of the living God. He's indicating that the prophets promised that God would make Israel go through judgment to come out into salvation. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, these two passages from Hosea speak of the restoration Israel can expect after exile. And he says, it will be a strange reversal of judgment in which a new word of grace will be spoken to a new people. The first word is judgment, but grace gets the final word. So, Friends, again, let me try to be as practical as I can here. That word of grace is powerful. That word of grace is the only thing that will transform us. See, if you are a Christian, if you are trusting in Jesus, then you've been given a new name and a new identity. And that new name and that new identity defines you. It really is who you are. See, you're not the name you were called maybe growing up or maybe what you've heard other people call you or maybe what you call yourself all the time. But you are, listen to the names God has given you. He calls you beloved. He calls us his people. Is that the voice you hear 
Do you feel God saying you are a child of the living God? I am well pleased with you. I am proud of you. I don't not only love you, I like you. I delight in you. You are my beloved. You see why it is so wrong to give people labels like fundamentalist, conservative, woke, liberal, progressive, especially if they're Christians. They're with us, part of the people of God. They are beloved. See, God has always been faithful to His Word. The map has always and continues to be trustworthy. But let me give you one more practical word before moving on to the next point. See, what else do we learn from this? How can we apply this to our own lives? Remember I said we have to read the map accurately? Well, I think one of the things to do with that is to practically have some humility before the Word of God. Have some humility as we read Scripture. And what does that look like, practically? Well, the first thing it does is it looks like questioning your certainty. And what do I mean? Not the certainty of the Word of God, but of your understanding of the Word of God. There's a difference between questioning yourself and questioning God. I'm not talking about questioning God. I am talking about questioning yourself. We need to recognize we don't understand God's Word completely or comprehensively. We also need to recognize that we come to any text with all sorts of preconceived notions, assumptions that we have that are based on our background, our upbringing, our history, our church history, our family, our experiences, our culture. Nobody comes to the Word of God neutral or objective. You bring baggage to your interpretation. Do you know what the baggage is called? Yourself. Just to give you one example, we all live in a culture where the air we breathe, just because of where we've been born and where we live, is from philosophically the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment teaches us to trust our own reason. Think we need to let go of that a little bit? To look at everything individualistically. And we can so easily then miss the communal nature of so much of Scripture that God is giving his word to form a community, to form a new humanity, to form a people for himself. That's the first point, the nature of salvation. Next, look with me at verse 27 and the nature of the people of God. And now, Paul is shifting his focus, still looking. You understand where you are by understanding where you've come from. And he quotes from Isaiah, this time Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 1. And he says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Remember that Paul is finishing off this rather long section that began back in verse 6, where he says, but it is not as though the word of God had failed. For He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So now what is Paul doing in quoting Isaiah? What part of God's big picture is he showing us here? 
Well, in quoting Isaiah 10, Paul is going back to the great promise God made to Abraham. When God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham, where he said the number of Abraham's children, according to the flesh, would be like grains of sand on the sea. But only a remnant would be saved. For he says in verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence, in other words, judgment, upon the earth fully and without delay. See, here he's alluding to Isaiah 28, and he's bringing it into the picture where Isaiah is stating that for God to make the world right, to put the world to rights, and think about that, that's what we want. We want to feast in the house of Zion. We want there to be no more death or crying or mourning or pain. We want new heavens and new earth. We want thy kingdom to come. But for God to do that, something has to happen first. And that is he must make a decisive judgment upon the earth. So then how is this remnant rescued? By going through judgment and coming out on the other side. Isn't that how salvation has come always? Think about Noah and the ark. What did Noah and his family go through? They went through judgment on the earth. God wiping out the earth in a flood. And what happened to Noah and his family? They were a remnant coming out on the other side. Think about in the example that's being used here of the destruction of these two cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. They are experiencing judgment. And what would have happened if Abraham's family and Lot's family had been left? They would have been lost, and we would have been lost with them since we're children of Abraham. God's first word has to be judgment if the world is going to be put to rights. So think about it, this. How does this remnant emerge? How does this remnant that will be saved from both Jews and Gentiles emerge? Well, let's remember the story. Remember God's big picture. It is all about how to solve the sin problem. Going back to Adam and Eve in the garden and even going back to Genesis 1 and how to fulfill God's original creational purpose. That creational purpose of being God's image bearers, reflecting God's glory on the earth. So what did God do to solve the sin problem? He started by forming a people. It was always a people. It was always a community. In that sense, it was always a church. He formed a people from Abraham who would be a light to the nations, who would be the bringers. Remember what he said in Genesis 12? Through you, all nations shall be blessed. Only one problem. Israel failed in its mission failed in its vocation, and thus Israel itself, who was supposed to be the solution to the problem, became part of the problem itself because it had its own sin problem and deserved judgment. And so now for God to save Israel, he must judge Israel. And God never abandons his plan A. And so what did he do? There needs to be a faithful Israel, a true and faithful Israelite who is Jesus the Messiah. He's the true Adam. He's the true Abraham. He's the true Isaac. He's the true Jacob. He's the true Moses. And the judgment of Israel 
We read in verse 28, the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. That judgment on Israel, who's the true Israel? Jesus. That judgment, the Lord did carry out His judgment fully, completely, and without delay. And it fell on Jesus at the cross. The judgment we deserve. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. How is there forgiveness? Because the judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah, fell on Jesus. The judgment upon Israel fell on Jesus. Jesus is the faithful Israelite. He's the representative. He stood in our place. He took the judgment we deserve. And what comes through that? He came out on the other side in the resurrection. And so what does Paul say about us? You're no longer called not my people. You're called my people. Why? Because you're united to Jesus Christ. You are no longer called not beloved. You are called beloved because who is ultimately beloved? Jesus. And what is the result? What emerges? A true remnant. True Israel. The true offspring of Abraham. The children of promise. The children of grace. What did we just do to earn, to deserve, to merit any of this? Absolutely nothing. You are blessed by doing nothing. You aren't blessed because you look right, because you appear right, because you put your best foot forward. We put our worst foot forward all the time. As a matter of fact, what does Isaiah say? Our best foot forward, the very best you could bring to God, is filthy rags. Part of having some humility before the Word of God is to recognize we don't understand grace. And unless we understand grace, how are we going to offer grace to others, to a community out there that needs to know that they belong. See, this is the true offspring of Abraham, the children of promise who, completely contrary to expectations. Do you think this is what Israel expected to hear? This is a story that shocks them, but it's completely in line with God's big picture, promised all along, that now includes Gentiles. See, this remnant is the worldwide church, the worldwide community of God. It's a diverse, beautiful family made up of both Jews and Gentiles from every culture, every tribe, every tongue, every language, and every nation. It's interesting. We're going to go to the Lord's table now. And we're going to read from the words of institution in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And one of the interesting things here is that we are told to examine ourselves, but in a particular area, to see if we discern the body. Now here's where I think our enlightenment heritage impacts us. We hear discern the body and we're immediately thinking, my relationship with Jesus. That's a part of it, but not the whole of it. Because what else is the body of Christ? the worldwide church and family of God. We are to discern this people who have gone from not my people to my people, from not beloved to beloved, from not my people to sons of the living God. 
We are to discern a people, a family, a household, a community, a new humanity belonging to God, a family that has become God's beloved through Jesus, the true and faithful Israelite, receiving the judgment that we deserve so that we come out on the other side. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel, for the nature of salvation that teaches us that we undergo judgment and we undergo judgment in Jesus and come out on the other side. Father, help us now as we come to the Lord's table to take a look around us that this is your family meal, that we're taking it together to discern the body, that we are in Christ and therefore we are reconciled not only to you, Lord Jesus, but to one another. Help us to discern that. Help us now to taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing the first two verses of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And as we sing, I invite the elders to come forward. I so often read these words of institution from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth is they're a congregation like all of us. They are a mess. You may not view yourself this way, but let me tell you something. You're a mess. And I'm a mess. And that is the first step in the normal, gospel-centered Christian life. To have the courage and have the guts to admit you're a mess and Jesus came for messes. He came to sit with outcasts and sinners. He didn't come to sit with good people and clean people and righteous people. And the church of Corinth, someday I'm going to have to preach through that book. Because they were, and when it came to the Lord's Supper, their particular issue is they were totally divided. Rich people wouldn't sit with poor people. Jewish people wouldn't sit with Gentile people. They were all over the place. And so Paul has to remind them of this. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, this is the Lord's table. This is God's hospitality. And he is wanting his family, his bride, his multicultural, diverse, beautiful community to share this meal with him where he feeds us with himself. See, the sermon might have been a dog. I might have preached a lousy sermon. Guess what? You're getting the gospel here, and I'm thankful for that. Because the Lord's table is going to give you Jesus' body given for you and Jesus' blood shed for you. And if you recognize your need for Jesus, if you are a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and part of God's church, you are invited to come to this table. Only if you are willfully and knowingly putting Jesus to the side, kind of saying, not yet, I'm not ready. That's okay. We want you to belong before you believe. So come on in and check it out. Keep asking Jesus to make himself real to you. I trust he will. I believe he will. But I would ask you, because this is his family meal, if you know you're not in the family of God, let the elements pass by. But Jesus may want you to be in his family. He may be calling and inviting you this very moment. And you know, it's not as difficult as you think. All you have to do is say, Father God, accept me because of what Jesus has done. My best life, my best morals, my best attire, my best of whatever are like filthy rags. I am tired of being in the hamster wheel. I surrender to your grace. That's it. You don't have to have your act together. You don't have to look pretty. Jesus will take care of all of that. Just come to Jesus. And friends, maybe you're sitting out here and maybe you've been part of the church for 40, 50 years or whatever, but you feel distant from him. Can I tell you, Jesus is not distant from you. He loves you and he's reaching out to you and he's saying, it's not about what you do, it's not about you. Look at what I've done for you. That's why this is a means of grace. This is why this is an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, these are ordinary elements, tangible things from the earth, bread and wine, bread and grape juice, that you've given to us. Lord, use this in our lives to open our eyes and open especially the eyes of our hearts that we'd see the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. That you could love us and call us beloved. Set these elements apart for their holy use in Jesus' name. Amen.
on the night Jesus was betrayed. After giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.
the same manner, our Savior also took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many. Drink, all of you, of it. But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. You are worshipped. Teach us to worship you, Lord. May the nations be glad. May the peoples praise you. May we, because we taste of your gospel, just, we were built for worship. Now may the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his kingdom that is reconciling all things to himself, lead us to carry this gospel to a needy and a broken world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's conclude our service singing the last two stanzas of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. upon you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.